0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, and thanks to everyone joining us today from around the world. Uh, I'm Dave Zirin. I'm the sports editor at The Nation magazine, and I'm moderating today's conversation. And now it's my pleasure to bring in Craig Hodges. Now, for those who don't know, and shame on you if you do not, Craig Hodges played in the NBA for 10 seasons in which he led the league in three-point shooting percentage three times. He's won two NBA championships with the Chicago Bulls in 1991 and 1992, and is a three-time three-point contest champion at All-Star Weekend and the author of this remarkable book, Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. And that's an important point, is that Craig Hodges is so much more than just an athlete. As as our questions, you're going to see that. And so now, it's my great honor to bring to you the one and only Craig Hodges. Craig Hodges. How you doing, sir?
1: Everything's good, brother. I appreciate this invite for you and Roy from Haymarket, man. It's cool. And just thank God for getting the chance to come across the Airways, man. Hope everybody's safe and well during this chaotic time.
0: Chaotic time is right. And that's, you know, really what I wanted to start with. Believe me, when we first decided to do this, I thought I'd be asking you all questions about uh, the last dance and the, and the like. But there's so much more I want to ask you about before we get there. Um, First and foremost, what went through your mind when you first heard about or saw the police murder of George Floyd?
1: Well, I think it was just a continuation of uh, what has gone on for years, man. And now it's just more visible with social media and social media is able to be eyewitness to so many of these incidents that are going on. And I think it's just one of those things where now not only is America being Uh, And I think the the coronavirus and and quarantine had a lot to do with it as far as people had a chance to truly get a chance to take a look at things and maybe research a little bit deeper than they have in the past. So I think that's why you're seeing the the outpouring of support and just uh, rededication to human rights, man. You know, when you look at the brutality over the centuries, I think it's one of those things that America hasn't really looked at the history of police and where it comes from as far as the slave catchers and like, and that some things are are nature and, and its root and that we talk about oh it's a bad apple here it's a road cop here it's always singled out as you know similar to the lone assassin thing you know that it's always one bad apple as opposed to the tree and the root of the tree having some some bad roots man and I think that's where we are today so for me it took one glance at it I didn't even look at it anymore because. To me, it was just uh, indicative of where we are today. And at some point in time, it has to end.
0: Now, as you mentioned, you know, we've seen this 50 state national uprising against police violence from Illinois to Idaho. And I wanted to know your thoughts as you saw the demonstrations grow and spread, not just around the country, but around the world.
1: Right. For me, um, you know, just thinking about from, you know, I'm 59 years old, uh, thinking about, you know, the last time I could even imagine anything like this is when Dr. King was murdered. Uh, for me, thinking about how, you know, going through Detroit to go to the World's Fair in Montreal, we had to stop in Detroit and we saw the National, you know, National Guard shooting and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, to see, and I'm in Illinois right now and to see military on the streets in, in the South suburbs is a trip, man. And to see, you know, whole intersections blocked off with big, you know, concrete blocks, you're blocking expressway a- exits and the like. It, it looks like, you know, if you were just to take a, a look at it, it looks like we're really in a third world country where there's been a, a revolution fought or something.
0: Yeah. Uh, or, or a crackdown on a revolution for sure. There you go. There you, go. Um, you know, people... Uh, out there, if you haven't read Longshot, you really should. There's parts in Longshot about uh, you leading marches after the police lynching of Ron Settles in 1981 by the Signal Hill Police Department when you were uh, a student at Long Beach State. And then, of course, there was the LA uprising in 1992, uh, which you commented on a great deal. Has any of this reminded you of that? Can you compare and contrast what it was like in 1981 and then the LA experience of 1992 does does now compare to that to you at all?
1: I think you know it's one of those things when you know at that time I was 21 years old man and, and to think in terms of Ron being one of my homies man and we you know he was a great football player in line to go you know Dallas Cowboys that talked to him his junior year about being prepared to possibly draft him so it was one of those things for me it, it hit home and it hit home to the point of knowing that life is precious and you never know as a black man, you never know when it can come to an end. And, you know, my mindset has been since that day is to, you know, to pick up, pick up Ron's uh, shield and, and do what I can to to further the next generation of student athlete, always with, with that day in mind, June six eighty one, 81, when it happened and, and to know how important it was to, to me. And then to see the Rodney King stuff go down and as a, professional athlete at that point in my life, I felt like it was, uh, it was important that not only to speak to the issue, but to make sure that people looked at it in a way that is not just a cursory look or, and I think that's what has happened in America a lot, man, is that black lives have been taken for granted to the point where, uh, death is almost like, a uh, watching a TV movie that is not real, but it's real, you know? So we have to, we have to do better as a nation.
0: Mm. Do you feel in any way, shape or form vindicated by this national uprising? Like history has proved you right for spending your life rebelling against racism and police violence when it really wasn't easy to do so, when it wasn't a 50 state, you know, like everybody's got the wind at their back, everybody's expected to be in the streets. I mean, you were doing this when that certainly was not the case. It, you know, cost you so much to do it. I mean, do you feel any sense of vindication?
1: You know, one of the things that for me is um, we're we're part and parcel of a culture and a fabric, man. That I don't take any I don't take any uh, accolades for for doing what is what I'm supposed to do at that point in time within the context of where my people are concerned. So for me, it's more of a light being shed on ancestors who who gave the ultimate price and. George Floyd being in that line with Dr. King and Malcolm and Matt Gabbers, who who gave their lives in in support of, of uh, principles, man. And, and I feel like right now we're at that, we're at a critical point where where um, everyone has to look at themselves. And, you know, the next thing you're having on the 18th, anti-racism for children, man. You know, racism is a learned behavior, and it's time for everyone to look at. When did that behavior start? You know, and I talk about it, I was talking to my sons about it the other day, that I grew up in a household that that spoken racial epitaphs because, you know, it's similar to what Malcolm said. It's the hate that hate produced. Mm-hmm. So you respond to that which is coming at you. So I asked white people, you know, to think in terms of when was the first time you encountered racism? And can we truly start to be honest about those conversations and then squash them so the next generation won't have that same learned behavior?
0: Yeah, That's real talk right there. Uh, what about Colin Kaepernick? I wanted to ask you about the vindication of Colin Kaepernick. I've heard a lot of folks say, if only if people had listened to Colin Kaepernick in 2016, you know, George Floyd might still be with us. Do you, do you think that there's a vindication about what Colin Kaepernick took a knee for back in 2016 and all the hundreds of high school and college uh, athletes who did the
1: same? Right, and that, and you know that's the thing, man, <clears throat> is that a protest like that is much better than an armed protest. You know what I'm saying? And and that to to see what Colin has been able to do, and as far as when you look around the country, coupled with the Black Lives Matter, you see people taking a knee, and none of that was done without him. Without him uh, realizing that he had to do something based on where he was within his career and when. Within the platform that he had, I give him applause all the time, man, because he took a, he made a courageous move, man, at a point in his career. And everyone wants to see what you're capable of doing and what type of numbers you can put up just from a competitive end and and how you grew up playing the game. And for it to be taken away from you, I I understand it. And I'm sure Moon understands it. And, you know, I applaud Colin for for doing it, but I also applaud, you know, people worldwide who supported him in social media. And I, I feel like, the social media and, and the amount of pressure that's being applied today is what made Roger Goodell come out and say that we were wrong about it. And then it goes to the point of, OK, you said you were wrong, but what were you totally wrong about? And how far do those wrongs go? And are we willing to admit to the depths of those wrongs that we speak about?
0: Mm. You know, you mentioned Mahmoud. That's, of course, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and Mahmoud really kept the flame of revolt live in the world of sports in the 1990s when it would otherwise was, was very, very low. Uh, but now you have a lot of athletes, particularly NBA players stepping up and speaking out. I mean, some of that has to do with the fact that former NBA player, Steven Jackson was close friends with George Floyd. They called each other twin cause they looked too so much alike. Well, uh, you've, you've had other athletes, NBA players in the streets, the NBA players at George Floyd's funeral, uh, Steven Jackson, uh, posted a video where he said, Louisville, we're coming for you. Brianna Taylor, we haven't forgotten about you in all this. I mean, so you've had, a, I mean, Carl Anthony Towns in the streets in Minnesota. I mean, so many examples of NBA players, not just, you know, putting out tweets, right. but actually putting their feet to the ground. What, what, what are your thoughts about that, seeing these and, players step up?
1: I, and I think, out? you know, and that's, that's where that point comes. Who am I? Am I identified as as a one-dimensional, multi-million dollar sports icon or am I a human being? And that when human human, um, events occur that call for you to act responsibly, you have a choice to make, man. And I think now our young athletes with, you know, with the social media once again and with the level of consciousness that's being able to come across through social media, this generation a lot different than where we were, man. So I love it for what they're standing on. And I think that, you know, through what's going on, there's going to be a lot, a lot of other instances where things are going to change. And as far as both the way this ownership is going to come off, coming out of this thing and how players respect both themselves, their communities, and uh, hopefully people and community come before your sport.
0: Mm. Now, your old teammate, and you know, I got to get to these lines of questions here. Uh, <laughs> Michael, Jordan, he announced in writing, not in a video statement, which I thought was significant. It was like his, uh, his, his number one handler put out a statement on his behalf that he was pledging hundred million dollars to causes that advance racial justice. What, what, what? I wondered if you heard about that and what your response was.
1: Yeah, I heard about it. And uh, what was interesting to me was I think the last part of the comment was about ingrained racism. Mm. And I found that interesting because it's almost like if it's ingrained, it's been there. It was there. It's been there a long time. So did you see it It'd be a long time ago? But mm. it's one of those things where I feel like in a lot of ways, they're trying to get ahead of the curve. Same way NFL was doing, same way Nike is doing is that let's get in front of the curve before people really start to peep out what we've done in the past and how much a part and parcel we are of the problem. So we can, we can uh, scope it the way we want to scope it. And, I, and you know, hopefully he has uh he understands what he's capable of doing with his magnetism and his power. And, you know, it's one of those things, man, when we, we've been in the fight. We see it for what it is and we accept the, you know, we accept the gesture. But once again, uh, one of my, one of my issues with been with my athletes and entertainers is that we've been able to do things anonymously, but where we are right now and in the past, we need visible leadership, visible, you know, mentors, man, where young people can see that we're actually concerned. And it's not just a check that I'm writing, but it's actually me having a passion about your concerns like you do.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you just said something really important I want to highlight. Uh, There's a difference between athletes hitting the streets and trying to directly engage with the struggle and teams that put out these kinds of generic statements, most of which don't criticize the police directly. But they put out these statements so they can be, you know, branded as being woke, if you will.
1: Exactly. (laughs) That's why it's funny when I hear they say Oh, the NBA was the NBA is the most woke league. And I'm yeah. like, wow. You know, and it's it's one of those things, man, where we can, and that's the power of the media. The media is able to shape the the shape the programming in such a way where people take it for the gospel. And now with with this age where you have guys like you and Haymarket and what they're doing and other people with their podcasts, is that the narrative is changing and you're able to stay more on point and on focus. Uh, What's happening, and not have someone else from the outside control the narrative in order to maintain the status quo or or make money.
0: Yeah, it is a sign of the times because the the NBA, you know, they try to do what Madison Avenue calls woke marketing
1: or woke
0: standing, (laughs) but it's a sign of the times that they feel like they even have to be that way. You know, one of their players from openly rebelling.
1: One of the things, you know, we got we have to challenge the NBA on is, okay. since um, let's do some revenue sharing where black banks and all the NBA cities have some type of form and, you know, have some type of connection to these franchises who are in these cities. So that maybe some of the funds can go into the victims of gun violence and the victims of police brutality so that now. You know, put your money where your mouth is because you know we can get the programs going because there's plenty of organizations within the communities across America and the world who know how to who know how to get the stuff to the people. We just don't get the resources to them so they can get it there. It's been a it's always been a block. I recall when Dr. King spoke about how much money was spent to kill a Vietnamese soldier and how much was spent for the war on poverty and and, you know, the disparaging range of it is. And it still happens today where so much is uh, stripped off with administrative costs and never get to the people.
0: That's right. Another amazing thing about this moment is a lot of people are learning for the first time about the radical Dr. King and everything he stood for at the end of his life. Instead of the commemorative McDonald's cup, Dr. King, (laughs) put out.
1: It's incredible, man. You know, it's incredible that how how engaged. America becomes with dead leaders. Mm. Yeah, we praise dead leadership. But when you have someone in your midst who is walking and live and working on actually picking up the mantle of those who you are, you know, it was interesting. We had a chance when I played with the Bulls, and it was Dr. King uh, celebration down in Atlanta, and we were down there the night before we had a game. Uh, Coretta Scott King invited us to come, and, and MJ didn't go. And I was I was blessed to be the next person to put the wreath on Dr. King's uh, tomb, uh, Dominique and myself. And it was so eye-opening when we sat in the conference room and it was just the players and her. And she asked if no one else be in. And she said, and I quote, it's incredible to me that the very people who killed my husband are the very people who fund his center today. Mm. And that is so eye-opening when we speak about the love of those leaders who have gone, when we think about Muhammad Ali and how beloved he became to the people, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where America can be so hypocritical at times and in, in the position that she takes that it <laughs> it becomes funny to a point, you know. And and even now, when we look at how everybody is embracing black lives and I'm like, wow, man, oppression has been here for how long? And, you know, I, you know, death is death. Life is life. A beating is a beating. The beating that Rodney King took, when we look at the magnitude of it, it was much more violent than the death of George Floyd. But the outrage was different because, once again, social media wasn't what it is today, nor were we quarantined to take a chance to take a look at it. So now we're seeing things in in the cold light of truth, and a lot of people ain't going to be able to handle it, That.
0: Yeah. Um. I, I gotta ask. Uh, you said you and Dominique. I, I assume you meant Dominique Wilkins, since you. Yes, were sir. Here. Yeah. Uh, I, I've never known of uh, Dominique as it uh, was. He a political guy? Was he? I mean, he and, must have been. And,
1: and and that thing, it was just us giving honor. You know, it was. Uh, we played the next night, and um, the night the game was going to be in honor of Dr. King. So the night before, we you know the teams were honored to get a chance to. Going lay a wreath at his um, at his memorial, and and Dominique and I happen to be the ones who get to do it because MJ asked me what I do it because he wasn't going to be able to go mm. for whatever reason.
0: And you mentioned Muhammad Ali. I mean, I've always believed that it said something really damning about this country that he wasn't really embraced until he lost his ability to speak. You know, that's when people started treating him as this kind of walking saint.
1: Right, and I think you know. And that's that's about prime prime time America, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because you want to catch him when he can't say anything. You don't want to catch him when he's when he's hiding on fire, man. You know. So, you know, I stopped and I I was telling someone the other day when I was looking at his Last Dance issue and, and seeing how how corporate and how um, economics are involved. And I said, what would have happened if Muhammad Ali? prior to winning the gold medal, or right after winning the gold medal, would have took that position that I'm gonna market myself as this individual greatest athlete of all time and I'm gonna be, you know, the great CC and not Muhammad Ali. And would it have been the impact on today's athlete as well as entertainer? I look at Muhammad Ali in similar context of how many athletes and entertainers love Bruce Lee, that it's almost that same cultural respect and that, you know, And with Muhammad Ali, he didn't take the money. And I say, man, if MJ was similar to, if Ali would have took MJ's approach, we would have never had Ali. He would have stayed Cassius Clay.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's right. And his his dream was to bring the showmanship of professional wrestling into boxing before he found his political voice. And that would have been all we would have had.
1: That's it. He would have been the gorgeous George of boxing, right? Yes, that's right. That was the guy.
0: It was it was gorgeous, George. Okay, so you you brought it up, so now I got to bring it up. Uh, before this national uprising <laughs> against police violence, the talk of the sports world was the last dance. And I, first, I want to ask you if you if you watched it. Did you see the last dance? Oh,
1: yeah, I watched every. I watched every one. From the standpoint, it, it was funny because I didn't know about it until a week before. And my son was like, yeah, Dad, you got you going to watch The Last Dance? I'm like, what is The Last Dance? He's like, oh, man, MJ. And so I didn't know anything about it. And the name intrigued me on Last Dance. Like, what is that all about? But not knowing Phil and his matches that he give to every season. I didn't know anything about that. But, yeah, I watched I watched it both from the standpoint of the critical look at it. But then once it started, just the initial opening of it put me back in the memory of the stuff that we did to win. and how cool it was that of what we were able to do as a, as a group, man. And so when I looked at it, I looked at it in a couple of ways, but then as it started to unfold and, and you start to throw people under the bus, it took a different perspective for me as, as my teammates, brothers, as, as big brothers to a bunch of guys that were on the team. And even his big brother at that period of time that I got to speak on that man. And, and I always spoke when we were in a group, whether it be, Someone, <clears throat> if if the ball went out of bounds on somebody, I'm am speaking on that. If it was something politically, I was speaking on that. So I didn't like the the way that he kind of threw people under the bus, especially the way he did Scotty. Man, I didn't think that was necessary or needed, especially when a lot of people have forgot about the episode of Scotty not coming in with Tony Kuko hitting the last shot, and then you bring that back to the public consciousness. And you weren't even on the team when it happened. So what is is the the necessity of it even being in the documentary other than to kind of throw some salt at Scott?
0: Right. Scotty and and Horace Grant, Um, both of whom. I mean, Scotty Pippen, from what I hear, is, is absolutely incensed. And hasn't really spoken. You
1: know, I've had a chance to speak to Horace um, a couple times since and, and we've been we've been in constant contact and and he told me Scotty was wasn't really feeling it. And I had a chance to talk to Harp and, and Bill Cartwright. And once again, I think Bill probably put it better than anybody that it's uh, it's one man's opinion of how the seasons went and and who and what he meant to it. And it wasn't like that for everybody. So he has the ability to put his story out there and he did.
0: Mm, yes, he certainly did that. You know, when when I was watching uh, The Last Dance and I was tweeting like this, I I was yelling, where's Craig
1: Hodges?
0: (laughs) I want to tell you why I was yelling Craig Hodges, not just because I would have loved your voice there, but particularly the scenes where they showed young Scottie Pippen trying to navigate the NBA. Who was the guy running over to him when he was on the ground, lifting him up and patting him on the head? Craig Hodges. There you go. Number 14. Who was doing that to Horace Grant when he was looking befuddled on the court as a rookie? It was Craig Hodges. And so I'm just yelling, how are you going to have him, you know, on camera in the games and not try to talk to the man? That's and funny. The producers said it was an oversight. They were asked about that. Um, they said, they said it was an oversight. We did. We, we didn't think about. It. Why, why do you think you were left out of the last wow.
1: dance? That is, and see, that's the first time I heard that the uh, the actual producers uh, made a because someone in. in I think as soon as it came out, I had an interview, and someone said they interviewed 106 people, and I'm like, okay. When you go back and you watch, and you got him shooting a shot against Cleveland, I'm in the backcourt with you, man. So. <laughs> I'm in the backcourt with you when we're getting ass whoopings from Detroit, man. Come on. And and to me, it was one of those things where you can, you can try to edit me out. It's similar to the three-point contest to me is that, you know, you go back and you look at it, you've changed the contest all around so you don't try to have to mention me and that kind of stuff. But it's funny because we understand history, Dave, and we've been blessed to uh, – for me, I've been blessed to be a part of it. So it's almost an honor and a privilege that I wasn't part of it Because it almost shows my position that I took in life, man. You know, it's similar to when I was with the Lakers as the shooting coach and we won championships and they went to the White House to visit Barack. They took two plane loads of people, they took the entirety of the office staff and everybody, and I didn't get to go. And that was so, that in itself was like, wow, man, I'm not good, out of war, Dashiki. I gave President Bush a letter. The only reason, Barack, you're in office is because I gave Bush the letter to open the door for you, man. <laughs> so you could at least let a brother come. But I told the brother. Uh, so it was funny how during the time when they were all getting ready to leave, it was a constant buzz through the organization. People were getting itineraries and everything. And I'm seeing itineraries in all the coaches' lockers and I don't see one in mine. And I'm getting the inkling of what's going on. And then Gary Beatty, the trainer finally slides up to me with this look on his face the day before everybody's getting ready to leave. He's like, yeah, Hodge, you know. Uh, I was like, "Gary, yeah, I know what's up, man. Just tell Barack I said what's happening, man.
0: <laughs> so you, you think, I mean, a, a lot of us amateur sleuths on social media, we're, we're all saying Craig Hodges is left out for political reasons. There's no question about it. Um, is that your analysis of
1: what yeah, happened? Once again, I don't, We like we say, we speculate, but I don't, I think it would have been They definitely would have to leave it on the editing room for because it wouldn't have been in vibration with what they're trying to get across. You know, I look at the certain points you when you talk about Republicans by Jim Shoes. I should have been in that part, the part at the White House, those type of instances where I said, you know, even to the clip that they put at the White House, they showed BJ shooting his jump shots. And I shot mine right after that. So I know when you went through the clip, you saw Craig Hodges and you've spoken to rank and file players basically of the teams. Come on, man. It it was it was a easy omission, I think, for MJ, especially knowing my beliefs and and where I stand on some of the things that he don't stand on.
0: It was a big come on, man. Like, oh, I, I man. felt that in my chest.
1: It's crazy. crazy.
0: <laughs> Do you think their effort to erase you oddly gave you more of a platform? Because I did see you on a lot of shows when that was That's out.
1: Incredible, brother. I'm literally, literally. And, you know, I I thank God all the time, man, knowing that my my steps have been guided <clears throat> from the time I was a little boy, man, to where I stand now. So it's not surprising that I've been blessed to study the stuff that is on the front burner today from the time I was a little boy. So mm-hmm. it's not surprising to me that the things are opening up now. I'm a lot more mature to handle and to be able to answer you know, where had this happened in 1991 when I was trying to bring together athletes and entertainers, I wasn't mature enough, man. And and now I see the maturity and looking back and seeing the experiences and the lessons of being exiled from the league and, and seeing the lessons of my boy, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, being exiled from the league and, and to see that same league award a, a overt racist and Donald Sterling a $2 billion parachute. And I don't get it. I don't get it from that standpoint, but I, I get it because I've studied. So we we recognize it for what it is. But if the NBA is so woke, they need to figure out how to make sure that they do some banking with black banks and make sure that some of this money and revenues that they're generating is going to some of these mothers who are losing their children.
0: Yeah, that's real talk right there. Um, You know, you mentioned you're exiling. I mean, for them to include you in that documentary, it would have meant reckoning with that. Exactly. Why do you yeah, which they did not want to try to do, not when the NBA was putting its uh, stamp of approval on this doc. Why do you think you were exiled from the league?
1: And, uh, I think it's because the NBA at that point in time didn't really want to face uh, the issue of race and discrimination, not only in America, but the, the human rights violations that have occurred in America against African people. Uh, that has never been one to face. And I've I've never... I've never ran away from the issue. In fact, many of the times, that many of these issues you and I discuss publicly are discussed in locker rooms, but they won't bring it to public view because of uh, possible repercussions from, you know, what may come from what ownership thinks about it or doesn't think about it. You know, you you got the head on right there. And the lesson we learned from our brothers in 1968, that when you come back from standing on something that's principled, that you're gonna have to fight, and, and the economic battle is so much that you know when they cut your legs off economically, now your family, your family struggles. But if you maintain, if you maintain um, your discipline and, and the reality of things, man, and, and all of us had great support systems, or none of us would have been champions of any type. So those support systems have been so great to all of us, and for me, I look at it as almost kudos to know that from a political standpoint, you have to. Try to make sure that you don't let this brother earn money just not to be able to spread this message to other athletes.
0: You know, if you'd been on the documentary, they also would have had to reckon uh, not just with your exile, but with your politics, particularly your critiques of Nike and Jordan himself. And I don't think they would have allowed that in there. Uh, what, What would you have said about Nike and Jordan and that whole period of the explosion of Nike's popularity, particularly in the black community?
1: One of the things I would have asked the question of why didn't we create some of these uh, manufacturing facilities in America? Why didn't we why didn't we utilize the enterprise zones in America and create some of these opportunities, you know, similar to today where Trump has opportunity zones? So why can't Nike work that opportunity zone uh, in this country? So it's one of those things, man, that I look at it from a different way, man. I look at it from a people's perspective. Like I've always been blessed to, and that you know we came through a a racist system, but doesn't mean that we have to we did we have to accept that. And I think that many times when I look at the posture that MJ has taken, it has taken on a posture of white supremacy, racism, whether he knows it or not. And he's smart enough to know it. And when I look at, you know, when I was telling someone when this whole thing came out of quarantine, when the quarantine thing came down. I told someone, I said, in order for America and the world to open up, it's going to be black athletes that do it. Mm. The first thing you have to open up, you have to open up sports, and you have to open it up with black people, which is NBA. So, how will those players accept opening up on a continued racist system, or are they being Able to utilize and leverage their positions to make sure that we stamp out racism going forward, and we giving you 120 days to make some of these viable changes, whether it be the economics of the league or whether it be police brutality. But some of these things have to start to take true root, not be reports and studies. You know, we have a study, we have an ongoing study, HR 40, I believe it is, for uh, reparations. And it's a study on reparation. How long do you have to study this thing, man, before you mm-hmm. start to give them out? And I think that's the that's the critical part of what we have to do now is that we have to start to show more action as opposed to talking and, you know, putting out reports in garbage.
0: Goodness gracious. People have been studying reparations since 40 acres and a mule. Like, how much?
1: Man, what are you what are you studying? Are you studying ways of not giving it out? <laughs> that's, what, that's what it seems to be boiling down to. How slow can we drag this thing out so that we can continue to figure out a way to keep people oppressed? And it's not just black people, man. It's red, black, brown, and yellow, and even poor whites, man.
0: Yeah, that's right. People forget or aren't taught in school that slave owners got reparations. Come on, uh, man. Yeah, they were cut checks after the civil war um i just have people have been bombarding me with questions to ask you but before i get to them there was a really there there's this terrible voting situation in georgia uh yesterday where black neighborhoods it was hours and hours to get to the polls white suburbs people in and out like it's nothing just a yes. horrific example of the new jim crow on display disenfranchisement and one of the people who drew attention to it was Uh, LeBron James. And I guess I just wanted to ask uh, you what your assessment of LeBron is and how he uses his platform. You know,
1: that that brother has to walk a fine line, man. And I respect him. I respect him for handling it admirably. You know, he's diplomatic on so many levels to be, you know, having been thrown into a fire at such a young age, he's matured on a level where you have to listen to him and he, and he has to be respected and that's honorable, man. So, you know, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of things and, you know, levels that he could possibly go, but I, you know, we're not walking in his shoes. I appreciate the fact that he's pushing the envelope as best he can, as far as he can. But also I think it's time for, you know, the rank and file players really see what they're capable of doing. And as far as getting the NBA to, be the most woke league, to be able to say, okay, what are we capable of doing? What is our true power? And not just economic power, but the power of the press, the power of marketing, the power of your brand, all of that coupled together lends itself to being a very viable vehicle for African people, not only here in America, but worldwide.
0: Mm. And then my, my last question for you, because before I start hitting you with the questions from the people is at this point in your life, looking at everything that's happening in the world, do you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist?
1: I'm optimist, man. I'm optimist. Never pessimistic. I, you know, I don't, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to be a pessimist and and have done the things that we've been blessed to do in our lives on the sports level that, you know, you couldn't be pessimistic and get a college degree. I don't Mm -hmm. think, I, I think, you know, pessimism, pessimism, pessimism is racism. It's one of those, uh, it's a tough behavior, man. You talk that, uh, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and I think those are the things that I was blessed, man. I was blessed to be able to have a free mind and a free spirit. And you're going to fall sometimes, but we're here to catch you and support you. And that's been my mindset all my life to the point where I have great friends, man, that, you know, I can talk to and my my friends are growing worldwide all the time just on stuff like this, man, just because we share a certain vision of how life can be. It's enough for everybody to go around. We know that. How can we make sure that that's the standard worldwide as opposed to it just being a certain elite that can have a, a certain voting right? So for me, when I look at the whole situation of voting and just that case in Georgia shows us, how far we really haven't come and that mm-hmm. the constitution still means something for one people and something for a different people. And until, mm-hmm. you know, it's like Bob Marley said, until that happens, it's war. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As, uh, what was it? Uh, I was about to hit you with another reggae lyric, but I can't remember. It's something like, uh, don't talk to me about peace until there's justice.
1: Hey, it's real. And, and that's the part that, you know, I was listening to Mike Pompeo today and he says, uh, I don't think I don't think there is really it's not it's not racism isn't systematic. And I'm like, brother, it's it's incredible. It's incredible when you stop and you think of. If we take the entirety of the American, the United States of America, which is the 10 square miles in D.C., If we take 10 square miles and we look at the people who come together as our representatives, they are so full of shit. It ain't even funny. And they so full of it to the point that it reflects in their spirit, in their energy. Mm -hmm. And then those who are like me, who look like me. And then when you get on there and you throw up that, that script, that ain't even you, it looks so clownish to me. It looks so buffoonish to me. And then to see in a whole nother realm, one of the brothers, I would like you to try to reach out to get in touch with me, and I've been trying to reach for him. Is Stephen A. Smith? Mm. Stephen A. Smith said some things about Craig Hodges that I think we need to talk about on air because you did them on air. When well, my sons reflect to me, so it's certain things like that, man, that that carry weight that is so flimsy right now. And I and you know that I love about it through social media, this younger generation is seeing the flimsiness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: arguments of. The exceptionalism, the exceptionalism that is America—they see in America through a different lens, as opposed to the lens that you know by Biden and them cats are seeing it in.
0: Right. You think when these folks like Pompeo when they're like, there, "There's no systemic racism." Is that just white blindness, or are they just being full of shit so they can keep corralling racist white that, voters? You
1: know, miseducation, miseducation. Uh, we you know we talk about miseducation of the negro but the miseducation of Anglo-Saxons is I think worse than anybody because you you've been fed to lie and you've ate it you got fat on it still getting fat on it now when that line is cut off uh oh oh I, I, I yeah you've been a racist think about it we look at when I look at a Lindsey Graham a mitch McConnell Dude, I, I look at you and I can see the racism in you. When I look at a Joe Biden, dude, you've been in Congress that long. You have to be a racist in the 60s. It, you, if you've been in that long, you have to be a racist at some point in time. And then that question comes back. what We spoke about earlier, Dave, at which point in time when you were a racist, but you said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to go over here and dabble over here and make them think that my racist beliefs are not really there. So now you can flip the script now that you're running for president and say, oh, well, that was then. This is now. No, right is right from the since the sun came up, man, the first time, you know. So don't tell me that, you know, politics happen to change your perspective. That's even worse. Mm-hmm. That's real
0: talk right there. Um, all right, I'm going to get to these questions. But before sure. I do, I got to say uh, someone asked about this hat um this hat is uh yeah it's a tribute to john carlos good friend of craig hodges dear friend of mine you can see his little shadow in there and this is the best part right here flip it up
1: oh man let's go cool. i gotta get one man
0: i will send you one i will send you one. i think john's got him online okay. i mean i gotta get one on the head of craig hodges are you kidding me that would be too cool um so Steve Horn has a question for you. I'm going to run through these questions for you. You um, curious what you think about. Uh, oh, no, no. This is the first one. I'm sorry. You are the player rep of three NBA teams. What do you think of the state of the players union today?
1: Uh, I think it's uh, it's making some strides. I think, um, you know, it continues to keep players at the forefront in its mindset. I think it can do a lot more. From a, you know, it's been apolitical in its origins. I think from the beginning to some degree, but I think now we have to take more of a uh, community-minded approach in as far as uh, being part of the solution and being able to utilize our weight as athletes in in that in that bully pulpit that they have to be able to pressure not only not only uh, management but other professional athletes and and professional unions to do the like.
0: Mm, You know, I hear that. Um, The next question. and, And man, people just have so much they want to ask you. Steve Horn is curious what you think about Adam Silver compared and contrasted with David Stern. Do you feel like the wokeness is real or is it a PR charade or is it just that players are more empowered now and it's a different era of NBA history?
1: Yeah, I think it's a different era in NBA history. Um, Dave, David Stern carried it a certain way. He, uh, he was more stern in his approach. Uh, Silver, Silver is part of this generation that understands it has to be a certain level of uh, temperance. It has to be a certain level of uh, you know engagement with the players. And owners, in my mindset and, and the way I view it, is that owners will allow players to get as much power up to ownership. That we want to, we'll allow players to go where they want to play, play with who they want to play with, give as much as we can give up to that level of ownership. And I think now is the time that players have to demand more of that, more of being able to be part of it as opposed to being a worker for it. That I think there's a way. Um, I think in all in in all of this thing, man, that that comes out to me with this uh, George Floyd, with the coronavirus, it's a whole new paradigm. And Mm -hmm. I think that paradigm shift calls for this next generation to be at the forefront of how it should go down, how it should be structured, because there is no empathy from the top down. There is no empathy from those who created this system and who are who are part of it. So it has to be a whole new thing where I think the NBA and major short and major sports is to the people on the court should look like ownership. So if it's 85% black or 75% black or 75% white, ownership should look like that or have a revenue sharing part that can bring it up to those levels.
0: Mm. Is it true that you asked MJ and Magic to boycott the 1991 NBA Finals?
1: Yeah, I asked them uh, before practice, uh, unlike what Stephen A. Smith said, I asked them right before tip-off I didn't do it like that. I asked them. We had a shoot around the day before the game. I asked MJ before the shoot around. And I asked Magic before the shoot around. Both of them took cursory looks at it as though I was crazy. And I understood that because they haven't studied what I studied. They haven't had the thought process that I have. But now I see it. basically they're coming around to the realization that, you know, our rights have been trampled upon and this human rights violation as opposed to the civil rights garbage that has never carried any weight with anyone. Hmm.
0: And um, who are you in touch with in terms of uh, your some of your former teammates who are c- just curious about who the people are that you still communicate and conversate with?
1: Me and Horace talk at least two or three times a week, man. And and our, our relationship has gotten a lot tighter. I had a chance to speak with John Paxson over the last couple of days, which, which was very, very, very cool, man. You know, for him to reach out to me at this time and and just say, yo, Hodge, I'm with you, brother, you know, and that. That that touched me, man, because that's crossing them lines that need to be crossed. That you know that, and and so BJ and I, you know, Bill Cartwright, and I see a lot of the guys during the um, during the summer for our golf fighting stuff. So it, it's cool, man. I've been I've been blessed, man, to have great teammates wherever I've been. So Ricky Pierce and I stay still stay in touch, and 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 we were teammates in Milwaukee. So it's a good thing, man.
0: Yeah, Paul Pressey was really Scottie Pippen before Scottie Pippen, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's so crazy that you say that, is that, you know, oftentimes players, they reach that star potential, but um, Press really had superstar potential, man. and his, But his, um, his personality and demeanor was too humble and it's too spiritual to allow him to ever think in terms of me, 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 and, and, you know, not, it's not it's not a bad thing. You have superstars, but superstars have to have that me me mentality at a certain point in time to reach that level.
0: Wow. Um, the Truth wants to know if you could provide any thoughts on President Obama. And in the grand scheme of things was the person who asked Kaepernick to think about the pain he was causing through his protest. Uh, do you think he was a net positive um, in the struggle,
1: yeah, Barack was eye opener. I think, uh, but I think what he did was he did great things, historic things, and I think, um, but it was eye opener for African people in America and I think around the world that expected more, expected, mm-hmm. you know, this to be somewhat of a um, of a Messiah return or something like that. That he was going to be the cure for all the ills of African people, when in fact that you know. We have to look at the structure, political structure, the power structure, the economic structure, and understand that Barack was part, part and parcel of that. No, no this or none of that. That's just what it is. And he had his role to play and he played his role. Now, as far as the liberation of African people and freedom, justice, and equality on a human rights level, it wasn't provided through him. We didn't we didn't get that. And had we gotten that, we wouldn't be here today speaking about it. So these things that you know are left undone and he's no. One man ain't going to solve this, man. So it's not going to be the president that solves it. It's not going to be one prime minister that solves it. It's going to be a, it's going to be the people. And that's the beauty of what the Panthers used to say, power to the people, man. And, and I grew up, I grew up under that. I grew up under not the Panthers, but I grew up under the love, you know, In that 1960s, we love one another, man. So it was a, it's a different, a different vibration, man.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ricardo Collisar has an interesting question. I'm going to rephrase it a little bit. He wants to know if you think the NBA should be playing its playoffs when the coronavirus is still so prevalent. And I guess I was wondering when I was reading that question, what you would do if you were playing now, if you were a player rep right now, what you'd be saying to your players about playing the playoffs with corona?
1: It ain't even about corona. I ain't playing because uh, you just killed my brother. Mm. (laughs) And now with this groundswell of support, Ain't none of them, none of us supposed to be playing. Why, why play? What? Do, how am I going to go play in Atlanta when you just killed Brother Aubrey? How am I going to play? go play in Minnesota when you just killed Brother Floyd? I'm not going to play. And now if more of us take that positions, we will see some definite, definite policy nuances that reflect what we bring to the table. So, you know, it's one of those things, man, that we we got the power to do something about it. Now will we? And no way we should be playing. And and the fact that America, and that's once again, man, where money is more important than people. We're in a rush to open this thing up based on e- economics. But based on those same economics, you give out 1200 a month or whatever you gave out in that little stipend. You've been stealing so much money from the American people. You could literally give everybody almost 10 G's of money if you really wanted to. but mm-hmm. The fact is that you have to maintain these puppet strings and make it look as though humans really matter. And we know through your work over history, you know, if we just take one instance, man, we just take the Native Americans. Just take them. Later for us, who came after them. let just take them. Their land. Now we have the audacity. When I watch Pompeo, when I watch Donald Trump, to just callously forget and not even honor the memory of the people who land you stuff, mm-hmm. And that's, and then we got, that's a karma that we got to pay for as a nation. So it's karma that we're getting hurricanes and corona and the economy and 50 million unemployed. Look at the deeds that we've done around the world. We've put this type of heat on other people, not from a hurricane being this, but what about the sanctions that we place on African countries that can't get their minerals out the ground? What about this type of stuff that has affected African people? What about France, who has all the the, the rights to currency in different parts of used to be used to be our colonies? It's It's ridiculous, man, that we have a lot. And I think that's the beautiful part when I look at this thing, you know, that. 50, 50 states and 18 countries protesting on our behalf. There's something different about this, brother.
0: Mm. I feel like you've answered this question, but it's worded so so wonderfully, I wanna ask it. Uh, Sarah Toussaint says, Craig Hodges, you were ahead of your time. Now that the world is caught up to you, what actions would you like athletes to take to advance social justice? What about the NBA or the fans?
1: Yeah, once again, I think I uh, appreciate that question. Like you said, it's elegant. And once again, to see the impact that, you know, and I take it later for the actual what's going on on the court. If fans weren't involved, there wouldn't be a product. Mm-hmm. If there weren't people buying tickets, buying jerseys, buying uh, all this memorabilia, wouldn't be any need for us. So that being the case, it actually showed with with Colin Kaepernick that the fan support was so major that the league had to have uh, you know, when, when black people withdraw watching, when black people would dollars from going to games and all of that, that made an impact. So based on what she's asking, once again, I say the fans can put major, major heat on NBA franchises by writing letters, writing emails, letting them know that we need. We're not begging you, but we need if you want us to participate in this entity in any kind of way, what are you going to do for us? And that's where I feel about the athletes that why should tell me why I should come play in Minnesota if I'm Carl Anthony Towns. Why should I come play when if I'm driving home for a game or my son or my cousin is driving that mm, they can be they can be floyded. You know what I mean? And that's the part where I feel like at this point in time where we are right now. Consider this day. This is crazy theory, I guess. 120 days. We don't play no sports. 120 days we don't buy no shoes. 120 days we don't go to any hair beauty supply stores as black people. What happens to that economics? The economics is the reality of African American people is that we're about nine billion, nine trillion, nine trillion in in wealth. How do we how do we harness that? How do we harness that? So our athletes could do that. Our athletes could be the economic vehicle to start to recycle dollars within the African-American community. So we can recycle it to the point where we ain't got to go to Walmart no more. We don't have to go to the big box stores anymore. We can regenerate that mom and pop Mm -hmm. generational wealth that was within the community. My granddad told me that when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, it broke the black. It broke black economics. Yeah. So in Chicago, he would tell me about he would go to a Sunday afternoon game at Comiskey Park and it'd be 40,000 black people with mm-hmm. black bus companies, black hotels, black restauranteurs. So all of that, it's got to be some way to be able to blend this thing, man, to get it to where it's a reality for human kind to reach their full potential, brother.
0: Yeah. Wow. And, and I, I've heard that about what Jack, when Jackie Robinson, he he breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball. But then the Negro Leagues and all the jobs it provided, you know, from groundskeepers to managers to general managers to accountants, it, it crumbles. It falls apart just that, that easy.
1: That easy, man. That's why we know sport is so important to the scheme of America.
0: Mm. Uh, the Truth wants to know, uh, knowing what you know now, uh, I'm curious if Craig would have done anything different from the way he protested. Any regrets? Or more effective actions, he would have liked to have taken.
1: None at all, man. You know, and that's the beautiful part of where I am at fifty nine. That I know how big a how big a part that was in <clears throat> in my growth process and in my learning and my maturity. That no, it was uh, it was a cultural imperative at that time and at any point in time that, had I won in college, I think I would have worn the dashiki. I don't know if I've written the letter, but I know the, the letter came to me the night before we took the trip. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things that I knew just in my heart, man. And to this day, you know, my son, my son, my oldest son went to, um, to a march in San Diego this last weekend. And then he called me at the end of, and he's like, man, dad, I know why you are like you are now, man. I was like, I was like, what's up? He's like, man, I was like, and I started, stopped him mid sentence. I was like, yeah, you feel, you felt something bigger than yourself, huh? He's like, man, it felt like I was on the biggest team in the world. I was like, yeah, man. And that's, I grew up with that. So that energy was put on me when I was a baby and it never stopped. And then when I got to Long Beach to be able to study more about it, it just took it to another level that where I'm at today, that's I feel blessed to be able to be here talking about it and, and be part of the solution, brother.
0: Yeah. Uh, Malcolm X clan wants to know if you support top ranked black high school athletes choo- choosing HBCUs, over big time programs with racist histories do you think that's an effective mode of
1: struggle absolutely and i think you know another thing is like i, I would i told people man what have, what would have happened if lebron james would have said that he was going to jackson state how many people <laughs> you know what i'm saying how many people would have flocked to jackson state how many you know what i'm saying and even if i don't and even like we young brothers who have might have a chance to go to the league just declare to, to hsbc man just just to let people know that hey i'm going to this black college and now that's going to draw other athletes. That's going to draw media. That's going to draw a lot of things that could help those universities, man. So I'm all for it.
0: Mm. Uh, Joshua Warsham uh, says, Craig, when when you were exiled from the NBA, what sort of effect do you think that had on other players in the league? Did you feel supported, or did others just feel silenced?
1: No, I think uh, I think it silenced uh, to this media, this social, almost man. Really, Dave, I think it's almost silenced until Colin, man. Mm-hmm. You know, we stop and we really look at it where, you know, it silenced people, man. People were scared to to lose their bread. And I don't blame them. I, I I get it. I get it. But at the same time, I was raised a different way. So I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice but to stand at those points in history and, and during my life and during that period of time. I, man, I got to do what we got to do. And, you know, be be cool with the, you know, the, the outcome and know that it's for a purpose. And the purpose is so much larger than you.
0: Mm. Um, this question here for you. Uh, the truth is talking some truth. He said, considering what Craig just said, I'd love to hear his thoughts on how the crime bill and how tough on crime Democrats helped pave the way for mass incarceration and injustice towards black people. Yeah,
1: and that's the, and that's the funny part to me. And it ain't funny. It's deadly funny when you think about a Hillary Clinton and, and a Bill Clinton and all of the, the, the hurt and pain that they can cause on the black community and walk away as though they didn't have anything to do with it. And, and oh, yes. And play this old rosy picture, man. But Once again, man, freedom and justice is ours now. I tell people right now we're free. We're free to define this thing how we want to define it. It's the first time in history that we've been where we are and it's a different energy, it's a different vibration. And now, you know, I look at those type of things and those bills, and those are part of the reasons that America's suffering the way she's suffering now is because of issues like that, and that the divine karma of nationhood has its place. So we look at all nations who have had so-called empires, they've all fallen, whether it's Rome, Persia, Britain, (laughs) all of them take their drop. And America, you've been in power a long time, and Man, when you look at it, it's amazing to see us in almost a third world posture when you see no food on the grocery stores. When you see this some of the stuff you see, that is it's something. something streets. It's something sobering.
0: Yeah, soldiers in the streets too. Um uh, are, are you okay with a couple more questions? You've been oh, yeah. you've been terrific.
1: Yeah, yeah, we good.
0: Yeah, we're good. Okay. Just wanted to check. Just wanted to be a, a, a good host for you. Um so uh, Steve Horn wants to know what role. I think I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but he asks, "What role do you think Stephen A. Smith plays in sports race discourse in America, given his huge platform, strong opinions, and relationships with players?" Love Positive, or negative.
1: I love it. It's funny. It's funny. You know what's funny, man? It's funny because you have to put on this. You have to. He's an actor. He's an actor, and that's what I, I looked at. His uh. I looked at his bio, that little Wikipedia job they put out, and I looked, and the last thing they said was journalist. This, 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 and then it had actor at the end. So now, when I seen it, I was like, yeah, he's acting every day. He's putting on this big old show, and this, you. And then I'm like, okay, how serious can I take? How serious can I take? Because some of the, some of your manner, some of the whole flow about it is TV. It's, um, it's entertainment, you know, and. Entertainment is so very needed right now during this lockdown. So it was interesting to see the comments that he and um uh Jay, Jay, uh Jay Will had mm-hmm. when they were talking about I guess uh Jay Will said something about MJ being his boy and he went ballistic. And I was laughing because I'm like, you know, we were taught that the only one when you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the only one that hollers is the one that get hit. <laughs> so why are you so upset? Let it go, brother. But yeah, man, I think Stephen A is doing what he's doing to make his money. But oftentimes, I think he needs to settle down and be more more calm in his approach and, and think about what he's saying. Because some of the things that I have issue with is, you know, you, you got kind of loose with your, you know, with your terminology. And I want to tighten you up on it and see where you really stand with.
0: Wow. Uh, Bill Marshall has a question about two people who've been uh, really impressively outspoken over the last couple of weeks, Uh, Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I believe Bill Russell's like 86 years old or something. I mean, amazing. And Kareem wrote that incredible op-ed in the LA Times. Uh, Please, please let me know. Uh, What are your thoughts about Bill Russell and Kareem? Bill
1: Russell. When you talk about, you know, they want to talk to go. Bill Russell's the go-to basketball. You feel me? Kareem is the vice president. <laughs> if it's that way, you know what I mean, man. So those are the elders that, if you're not listening to them, I don't know what to tell you. That if you're not in line with them, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm not saying that. Oh, you know, we we love to use the term uh, African Americans. We're not a monolithic people. I get that. I know we're not monolithic. That's obvious. But at the same time, there's a right and wrong. So the right that these brothers stand on, these brothers that stand on principle, man, you stop and you think about Bill Russell. Man, the fact that he is who he is, he's around and still around to talk about this is to give elder wisdom, man. And we need to take it and not, not negate it and not shortchange it it needs to be highlighted. And I think America needs to highlight it while they're still alive. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about is that I'm working on a project to uh, bring John Carlos and Tommy Smith hopefully to Chicago and get them an honor, man, you know, because I think they they deserve to have that prestige, man, like Kareem and like like Bill Russell, man. The, the fact that you set up a a conscious athlete that's able to vibe off of your experiences and to see what you were capable of doing with your athleticism, man, that that's gotta be honored, man. Mm.
0: I'll, uh, you honored John and Tommy. I'll be proudly in the front row, standing on the seats. Um, Sydney A wants to know who, what do you admire about this generation of athletes and what's your biggest concern for them as they become more involved in social justice
1: issues? Well, my biggest concern is that, you know, They can be ostracized or whatever, but I don't think with the groundswell of support today, they really have that concern. Uh, I think they have um, a lot more courage than we had during the '90s. Not not so much from the standpoint of uh, maybe what they're doing on the court or the field, but what they're doing with their voice—that they're not afraid to raise their voice, they're not afraid to take a stand, and that you know that's honorable, man. And and hopefully we can we can see through what they're doing um, a brighter future, man. Just by them standing up, we can see things happening.
0: Mm. And um, and the truth has a question. Uh, I, I mean, you were a three-point specialist, and I think we all want to hear your thoughts. Um, all want to hear your thoughts about how the league has become so three-point centric. I mean, right. I think you would dominate today in a pace and space type format, but do you think it's good or bad for the game, and would you, you enjoy playing more now or when you played?
1: I was blessed when I played, man. I, I wouldn't change for when I played for anything in the world. And I, and, I, you know, it it would be fun to play today because so much freedom is so much it's, – it's such a less physical game from from where I see it. You know, it's still a grind of 82 games or what have you. But to be able to play without a hand check, to be able to play without, you know, elbows and different things at certain times in, in space, you know, it would have been fun to play, but, you know, I like when we played, it was uh, it was more strategic. I think now with the analytics of the game is hopefully I can shoot more threes than you tonight and, and I hit more than you, hopefully, but it's not the, you know, it's not the triangle basketball that won championships, man. And I, you know, I understand why, because people don't understand how to teach it. I could take eight teams right now and. Take them to a, close to a championship. Well, we're definitely making contenders with the Triangle, just on what I know, <laughs> you know. And what I know is probably the only person that that knew more Triangle than me just passed away. Tex Winter.
0: I was thinking of that when they highlighted Tex Winter in the Last Dance. I was like, "Where's Craig Hodges?" Because nobody knows Tex Winter
1: like you know, Craig Hodges. And the funny part is, is that people look at the transition from Doug to Phil, but they don't talk about. The transition and implementation of the system, you know, and that it was everybody standing at the baseline and me and Tech standing at half court teaching them the system. And Tech told them, you better listen to Craig because he knows it and he's played in it.
0: Wow. Um, And then I one more question and then I have one last final question and then we'll give your voice a break. And you've been Really generous with your time. Uh, Mama Loves to Dance wants to know if you have any views on uh, the value or and, and pay issues um, between the WNBA and the NBA.
1: Oh, yeah, that's that's America. I feel like, you know, once again, the, the, the pay structure has been been one of white supremacy, racism so and, and sexism. Uh, and that and that stands to reason in America. I think once again, I think. Right now, women's sports are going to start to see more equal equal pay or or slanted towards that direction, and they have a good product. I think now it's just a matter of making it to where it's more visible. And you know, the time frame is crazy. You know, for basketball being in the summertime, so it's kind of tough to really garner the support that you need to be able to get all of the players to stay over here for a season. It would be interesting to see, but now with everything changing up. Who knows how this new scheduling is going to pan out? Maybe, maybe they need them now to play during the regular season, as opposed to or elongate the season a little bit longer, so it can catch up or be part of the regular basketball mindset of the nation. But they deserve it, you know. I've always been a, a, a proponent of you know equal pay and equal justice, and mm-hmm. you know it's different in, in that case.
0: Right on. And then my last question for you. This book right here, Long Shot, yeah. such a great book. I That's think
1: you wrote the forward, man. I just wrote yeah, that was an honor for me.
0: <laughs> I was so honored to have that. It's such a good book. Um, everybody I know who reads it gets so much out of it. What what do you have to say? I think we're gonna a lot of people are gonna pick the book up because of this discussion. What what do you have to say to the folks who are about to crack your life story?
1: Well. Enjoy the read and, and and for me it was uh you know, me and Rory, we sat down and, and it took me 18 months, man. And that was something that was eye-opening in itself, and as far as the whole process of it. And I hope they I hope they enjoy it from from the standpoint of knowing that it was um it was probably a work that should have been done 20 years earlier, but the the experiences hadn't happened. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I love to write during that period, but to actually sit down and get it done. It's been fun, man. It's been a fun experience. It's similar to, you know, you, when I was writing it, I wasn't really thinking about what it was going to be like when Roy finally, yeah, man, we good. We done. I'm like, done. And now we have a final product and it takes a life of its own, you know, and to the point where it's a group out of Britain who produced Black Mirror, who option, who's optioned the book to do a documentary and movie. So it's taking a life of its own, and I just appreciate your support. Haymarket support and those who've ever read it, you know. But hopefully, those who who will read it in the future will enjoy it and and see some maybe some experiences that similar look to similar to their own, and be able to you know vibrate with what I was on, man.
0: Right on, right on. Hey, uh, Craig Hodges, you you are truly one of the greats, man. Thank you so much for uh, oh. joining us on this Haymarket chat.
1: Once again, man, I appreciate you, Dave. Keep up the good work, man. God bless you and your listeners. Everybody be safe.
0: Absolutely. Be well, everybody. Peace, peace. Stay frosty. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.